Lord Jesus, we're grateful that what happened with you and what happens with you is what happened to us and happens with us. Your death became ours. Your resurrection is ours. Your ascension is ours. One day, your exaltation will be ours. And we honor you for that. We love you for that. There is no God like you. There is no Lord like you. There's no Savior like you. You are in a class by yourself. And we love you this morning. We love you this morning. So thank you for this time. And as we are going to open the word in a moment, we pray for other fellowships throughout this area that also are doing the same right now with the intention of exalting the Son of God. And we pray that your anointing would be upon the word everywhere where it's preached, everywhere where it's proclaimed here in Santa Cruz County. Cause your word to run, Lord, and have good success. Add to the kingdom of God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, again, welcome, and I just feel like I need to extend a hearty welcome to you Teen Challenge guys. We don't acknowledge you all that much, especially, but we want you to know that we're really glad you're here, and we're glad for what the Lord's doing in your lives, and we know you're here for a specific purpose, and we're praying for you, that the Lord would accomplish that purpose in your life. This is the first day of the rest of your life, right guys? So we're, we're for you, we're rooting for you, and, and we're, we're glad you're here. Thanks for gracing us with your presence. We mean that. Welcome. Okay, well, before we get into Revelation 12, which you can turn there uh, if you'd like. Well, even if you don't like, please do. <laughs> I want to just say thank you uh, for your prayers. I know that there are many who were praying very specifically and very fervently uh, for Pastor Dan Finfrock and, and me as we went to Pakistan. And your prayers, we want you to know, were very much felt. We, not only were the effect, was the effect of the prayers obvious and the fruit that took place there, but uh, we felt the effect of the prayers. There were situations where it could have been different than it was. Uh, there were security concerns that I didn't want to uh, express too much in depth. I didn't want to concern my wife and my mother. Uh, but, I mean, there were situations that could have been pretty gnarly. And uh, we are very, very glad that we experienced the peace in the presence of God. And uh, we were just able to focus, both of us, on the ministry of the Word and on what we were there for. Uh, Pakistan is an amazing place. I've been to India. I've been to 32 different countries, but I've never been to a place exactly like Pakistan. It, uh, because of the Muslim majority, uh, anywhere from 96 to 98 percent Muslim majority in that country, which would make the Christian minority anywhere from uh, one and a half to three percent, most likely. And uh, for a Christian to be a Christian in that country it costs them something. Uh, when they get baptized, they know that they have crossed a line. They have gone from their previous life to their next one, and they know it could cost them their, their physical lives. They're very aware of that. If they are con converted from Islam to Christianity, which is happening at a, a good rate in Pakistan, by the way, 
when they make that move from uh, Islam to Christianity, they know that there is now a contract out on their heads. And in some cases, they will lose their lives. Uh, we, uh, we're talking to one uh, fellow, and I'll introduce you on a slide here in a minute, but uh, he had uh, won a couple of Muslims to Christ, and then he baptized them. And because of his circumstances, he has to be on the move a lot. And after he left the town in which this couple lived, uh, the fanatics came and just killed him. You know, so they were freshly born again, freshly baptized, and then uh, immediately after that went into heaven. Uh, but that's just the way it is. It, uh, Sharia law is uh, the law of Pakistan, Muslim law. And uh, if you uh, are a Muslim and you convert to Christianity, it is against the law in Pakistan, and you can lose your life for that, and probably will. Uh, and uh, Christians, now here's the advantage, and this is the thing, the big thing that I want to that I want to uh, permanently take away from my trip, as far as what I gained out, out of the trip. Here's the advantage of the laws against uh, Christians. What Christians are not able to do is they are not able to speak against the Quran. They are not able to speak against the Muslim uh, prophet Muhammad, and they're not to say anything against Islam. If they do, then they are guilty of breaking the, uh, the blasphemy laws, and a Christian can die and be executed by the government for such an offense. So they turn that around into a blessing. What they do do is they proclaim Christ, and they proclaim Christ with great fervency and with great boldness. It, it, they're not targeting Islam to speak against it, and they're not targeting the Quran to speak against the Quran, but what they do do is they exalt the person of Christ, and he is the subject of their sermons. He is the subject of their lives. He is the subject of their gospel preaching, it's Jesus, then more Jesus, then more Jesus, and then more Jesus. And it's so exciting to see uh, the, the church is growing because they are known for who they are connected with, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to take away. Is, uh, I want to personally be a man who is more known for what I am for than what I'm against, and I want us as a fellowship to be more known for what we are for than what we are against. We are for Jesus Christ. And I remember the first uh, meeting that I was asked to speak in. We were doing seminars there, uh, of course, training pastors and Christian workers in inductive Bible study and sermon preparation. But in the evenings, they had uh, set up uh, meetings for us. Uh, I guess you've been showing those pictures, huh, Courtney? Okay. Let's, let's pause those because I want to make comments. I'm not going to do a living room slideshow, but <laughs> it'll be close. But Anyway, um, there were evening meetings that were set up, and I, was, I thought that these were meetings in churches. What, what I wasn't aware of is that, that when we got there, that these were full-on crusades that they had planned. And since Pastor Dan was doing the bulk of the teaching in the seminar during the day, he didn't really feel like he should go out at night. And so I was the guy to go out at night. And most of the time we got back at like 1.30 in the morning after doing these crusades. But uh, these were evangelistic, full-on evangelistic crusades. And I was the, the speaker at these things. And uh, 
so the first night, here I am, I'm thinking, what am I going to say to these folks? What text am I going to come from? Uh, what passage of scripture am I going to exposit here? And what the Lord really put on my heart is just tell them about Jesus. I didn't know how much of, about Jesus they knew. I didn't know if they even knew who he was, some of the people that were there. And so I just told the story of Jesus. I talked to them about who he is, about his birth, about his sinless life, about his, his resurrection from the dead, about the reason why he came, about his death on the cross for our sins, about his ascension into heaven, about his exaltation, about the fact that he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I just talked to them about Jesus for an hour. And it was incredible as they responded to the gospel. And there were Muslims that were there that were coming to Christ all over the place. People just, they wanted to come to the Lord. And they wanted to, they wanted to know this one that had been proclaimed to them. They wanted to discover who he was and they wanted to have a relationship with him. So that's, that was just so exciting to see as we went from place to place and meeting to meeting and, and just told them about Jesus. It was cool. And we saw the Lord confirm his word with signs and wonders. We saw healings and deliverances from demons. We heard reports from host pastors that after we were there and after we prayed for the sick and after we prayed over people that were demon-possessed and all these kinds of things. I mean, I throw these words out and they just sound so like, yeah, well, that's you know, demon But I mean... It's not stuff we're used to here in this culture, but it's part of their world over there. This is what they deal with. And uh, so one of the pastors said that, uh, you know, after the two Americans were here, these are the things that he had gotten many, many phone calls and emails in the following week or two, uh, just telling uh, him about how they had gotten healed from this or that or delivered from this and that. And uh, we didn't even know. We're praying in English. We had no idea what God was doing. Uh, we're just trusting him, and then we walk away and we hear these testimonies. You know, it's pretty wild. Anyway, this is uh, the graduating seminar uh, participants in the city of Hafizabad. Go ahead. And uh, this is me speaking. Uh, I was doing biblical exposition, the book of Ephesians, during the seminars. This is Pastor uh, Zishan Robert. He is in the city of Hafizabad. He's 30 years old, and there is an anointing of God on this young man's life. I'm so glad that, to have a relationship with him. Go. Uh, <laughs> sometimes it was hard to stay awake, and somebody snapped a shot of me snoozing during the seminar. Okay, next. Uh, they uh, decked us out in this uh, traditional Pakistani garb, and when we'd go to a meeting, they would... Uh, put these plastic lays around us, and then in this case, they gave us these sultan hats, or whatever they were, but this is a, a, a thing of great honor for them. It looks sort of silly from our perspective, but, but they were totally into it, and that particular night, I actually sang a song that they had taught me in Punjabi, and uh, they were just completely stoked. They were ready to listen to the word that I taught that night, because I had uh, related to them. I'd worn their sultan hat, I'd worn their lay, I'd worn their traditional dress, and I sang a song in their language. They were pretty excited. Okay, next. Uh, this is praying over the sick uh, in an evening meeting, and that uh, the splotches on my shirt were sweat. It was just very, very hot and very, very humid there, and there's just no way to control it. I was sweating all the way through. Okay, next. 
uh, one of the seminar participants studying his lesson, the charting OIA, only they go from right to left instead of left to right like we do next. This is one of the happiest men I've ever met in my life. His name is Thomas, and he is a worship leader of the church there in Hafizabad. And this guy was contagious. And he's playing an instrument called the uh, harmonium. He's pulling uh, the air into the machine with his left hand, and then he's playing the keyboard with his right hand, and, uh, and then leading worship. He didn't have a microphone stand, so somebody had to hold the mic up to his mouth. But this guy, he was an awesome brother. Really love Thomas. This is Pastor Dan Finfrock, who uh, is the director and founder of Intensive Care Ministries. He's the one that's developed the IBS Bible uh, training seminar that uh, he's taught all over the world since 1985, and I've taught it many times myself. Uh, I've been on his board since 87. But we're talking to a man there, the guy in the yellow outfit. He is connected to the... Uh, royal family in Saudi Arabia. His father was one of the leading religious instructors in Islam. He had to flee Saudi Arabia because there was immediately a contract out on his head. He's Pakistani by birth, and so he's been living here or there in Pakistan, uh, wherever he can find a place to live. He has to basically flee one place to the next. I'm going to try to see if I can help get him... uh, find asylum for him in some country outside of Pakistan because he's got a lot to say. You know, he and other, other men that we uh, met, uh, they do use the Quran, but what they do is, is uh, they preach Jesus Christ from the Quran because it's possible to do it. All the major facts of the gospel of Jesus Christ are reflected in the Quran. His virgin birth, his sinless life, his ministry as a prophet, his Uh, attesting to his teaching, his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead are all taught in the Quran. So they just go directly from the Quran and preach the gospel and show that Jesus is the king. They don't say that Muhammad's not a prophet. They just say that Jesus is the king of the universe and the, the creator of everything and the Lord of lords. And so, you know, they urge people to believe in him. He speaks several languages and writes and is fluent in several languages, and I was just humbled to meet him. I mean, it's just a very humbling thing to meet people like this and to hang out with them, you know. And uh, Maybe someday even, you know, we'll have him come to the United States. Maybe something like that would work out. It would be awesome to have him come and share with the body. Anyway, thanks for praying. That's a short synopsis of the trip, and uh, I could uh, say a lot, but... Uh, That's probably enough for right now. Revelation chapter 12. The title of the message this morning, Spiritual Warfare Throughout the Ages. John the Apostle is in heaven here in chapter 12. And he's viewing what he sees in this chapter from the vantage point of heaven. And that's going to be an important thing to remember. What he sees in this chapter, the events of this chapter, has to do with the subject of spiritual warfare. And I think as we'll see, he's really describing spiritual warfare throughout the ages. He's describing its beginning He's describing its end. He's describing what happens in the middle. 
Now, when we read the chapter, it can be somewhat confusing looking at the timing and the chronology of these events. Okay, what was this referring to? And what time frame was this connected with? And that becomes the confusing part of Revelation chapter 12. Unless we understand that John is seeing it from heaven and thus is seeing it from an eternal perspective and where uh, time is not linear and it is not seen in sequence, he's seeing it as one conglomeration of a series of events without placing things in a beginning or an end sort of a chronological format. The example that helps me understand this concept of eternity and seeing things from that vantage point is the example that Pastor Chuck uh, uses of uh, going to the Rose Bowl Parade on New Year's Day morning. There you are at the Rose Bowl Parade and you've got your seat in the bleachers on Colorado Boulevard and uh, you've gotten there a little bit late, and so the parade has already begun, and some of the floats have already passed by. But there you are with the program, and you look in your program, and you see that maybe in 10 minutes or so, there's going to be the float that you've really wanted to see. It's going to come by, and you're going to check it out. But you don't want to wait 10 minutes, so you get up out of your chair, and, and you go backwards in the parade route, and you go backwards to see what's coming. But then you think, well, you know, it's a bummer that I missed these floats that have already passed by. I got here late. So I'm going to go forward to see what's already come, what's already happened. So from the perspective of his seat, you go backwards to see what's coming. You go forward to see what's already taken place. But then there's the guy up in the Goodyear blimp. And he's looking at the entire parade route. And he's not seeing things in terms of this, then that, then this, then that. He's seeing things in terms of, well, there's the parade. It's all right there in front of me, right in front of my eyes. And that's sort of the, the way that I think John is seeing the events here. Uh, looking at what's happened in the past, well, it's all right there in front of him. Look at what's going to happen in the future. Well, it's all right there in front of him. And so there's a timeless, non-time way of looking at Revelation chapter 12, which I think helps the understanding of it. John is seeing things from that vantage point. Overall, the chapter deals with spiritual warfare in heaven, rebellion against God. Spiritual warfare against Christ or the Messiah. Spiritual warfare against Israel. Spiritual warfare against believers in heaven, accusing them before God day and night. And spiritual warfare against all believers, including believers that are going to be believers during the tribulation period. Now why do we focus on chapter 12 in this way? Well, it's the subject of the chapter. It's what is evident in the chapter, but it's also important for believers to understand the nature of spiritual warfare. It's paramount in war to understand the tactics of the enemy. It's important. It's important and paramount in war to know the strengths of the enemy and the weaknesses of the enemy. 
when we understand the tactics and the strengths and the weaknesses of our enemy, it is much easier to defeat the enemy and be victorious. The Bible says we are not ignorant of the devil's devices. So there we have the tactics part of the warfare strategy. And the Bible also says that we as believers are able to resist the devil and stand in order that he flees from us. So we know what his Achilles heel is. We know how to defeat him. We put on the whole armor of God and we will be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, we'll be able to stand. So it's important to understand these things. And of course, there is no room whatsoever in this chapter or in any chapter in the Bible to ignore the reality of and the existence of the devil. There is a personal devil, and he is malicious and evil, and he is doomed, and one day he will be cast forever and ever into the lake of fire. But in the meantime, he's very much alive and well on planet Earth and is acting in very malicious antichrist ways in order to deceive as many as possible. So we have to understand these things. If we don't understand these things, we'll not be good soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Characters in the chapter, there's a woman, there's a child born to the woman, there's a great dragon, there's a third of the stars of heaven, there's Michael, the angel, of course, the archangel, there's Michael's angels, and also those that are called the brethren. The great sign of a woman pregnant with child, verses 1 and 2. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. So note the description, a woman clothed with the sun, a moon, the moon under her feet, and a garland of twelve stars. What is this referring to? Some have tried to identify the woman as the church, saying that the church gave birth to the child who is Jesus. Well, there's a little bit of a problem there. The church didn't give birth to a child. The child, Jesus, gave birth to the church, right? And married the church as his bride. So that's just wrong to uh, conclude that the woman is the church. It's not... Uh, difficult to, to know the interpretation of the woman. Uh, a reference to, uh, to this is in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis in chapter 37. You remember Joseph, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, had uh, a couple of dreams. And in the second dream, he told it to his brothers, and he said, look, I've dreamed another dream. At this time, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his brother, brothers, and he told it to his father, and his father Jacob rebuked him. And he said, what is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? Okay, so let's put that together. Here you've got Joseph having a dream. And in his dream, he sees the sun, he sees the moon, and he sees the 11 stars. Jacob, his father, says that the sun is Jacob. Shall I bow down to you? The moon is Jacob's wife, Rachel, 
and your mother bowed down to you, and the eleven stars were, J- were Joseph's brothers. When you throw Joseph into that, it makes twelve. Shall we indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? So putting it all together, the sun, the moon, and the twelve stars make up whom? Make up what? It's a reference to Israel. To the nation of Israel. Those that descended from Jacob and from his twelve sons. And it couldn't be any clearer than we have it there in Genesis chapter 37. So, the nation of Israel was the entity that had a child. Being with child, verse 2 tells us, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Now, who is this child? It's very easy to know that as well. In verses 4 and 5, we see that this child is born and the dragon is ready to devour the child when the child is born. And verse 5, the child is born and he is a male child is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And there is only one possible historical fulfillment of this and that would be the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Psalm 2 tells us that the Messiah, when he comes, will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And historically, it's exactly what happened. There was an attempt to have Jesus killed as soon as he was born. So we've got a couple of the characters now set up. And we can see uh, the backdrop to the entire scenario here. The woman is Israel and the child that Israel births is none other than Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world. So the next sign that John sees is the sign of the great dragon. Verse 3, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. So we have the identification of a great red dragon. Now, what's this reference to? Who is the great red dragon? And isn't it wonderful that the Bible interprets itself? If you look at verse 9, we can see that the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan. So the great red dragon is the devil, Satan. And here he's described as having had uh, seven heads and ten horns, and we'll see more about what that means in chapter 13. So the great red dragon is identified as the devil, And of course, as we've already said, we must be very aware of him and of his tactics. Not to be afraid of him, because the only one that we should fear is the Lord himself. But for the purpose of being victorious over him, we must be aware of his tactics. Now what does he do in these verses, in verses 3 and 4? He draws a third of the the stars of heaven... uh, and and draws them with his tail, and throws them down to the earth. Now, who are these stars? What is the reference here? What is it referring to? He draws a third of the stars of heaven from earth uh, to, or from heaven to the earth with his tail. Well, again, the angels are the reference. 
The third of the stars of heaven is a reference to a third of the angels. Again in verse 9, describing the devil being cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. In other places in the New Testament, 2 Peter 2, Jude 1, we see that these angels that fell with the devil and fell with Satan out of his place from heaven, they were those who did not uh, keep their first estate. In other words, they rejected their first and primary place to follow Satan and go his way, and thus they were rejected and cast out of heaven. Verse 9 says they were cast out of heaven. Verse 4 says that the devil's tail drew them from heaven to the earth, which is true. They're both true. The devil induced them and seduced them to follow him, and so his tail drew them to the earth. But their rebellion in total caused God to cast them out of heaven to the earth. So both happened. There was the deception of the devil that created that reaction, and then there was the judgment of God that created another reaction. And it tells us that this dragon stood before the woman, verse 4, who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. And we know historically the fulfillment of this. Remember King Herod. King Herod was a megalomaniac. He was a very insecure man. He was king of that region of Israel. And when he heard from the wise men from the east that the Messiah had been born in Bethlehem, he immediately issued a decree and had all of the children in Bethlehem, two years and younger, killed, thinking that he could exterminate the Messiah and eliminate a potential rival to his throne. That's what that was all about. But uh, Joseph had been warned by God in a dream, and he fled Bethlehem and went to Egypt with Mary and with our Lord Jesus. But that wasn't the only time that this dragon has tried to kill the child who became ultimately a man. In the wilderness temptation, the devil very much was interested in stopping Jesus. And those three temptations in Luke 4 and in Matthew 4, they were the culmination of 40 days and 40 nights of temptation. And he saved the hardest and the toughest ones for the end. When Jesus was hungry, he had been fasting for 40 days, had taken no food. He was in a weakened physical condition. He was vulnerable. And that's when the devil came to him and said, if you are really the Son of God, then command these stones to be turned into bread. Uh, Why don't you get up on the pinnacle of the temple and jump down, and the angels of God will be dispatched to save you, and you can display your Messiahship, and you can display your glory. Why wait for for the Father to glorify you, and, uh, and, 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 and such, a, such as that. And if you uh, really want to have everything that I can give you, the devil said to him, all you've got to do is bow down and worship me. He was trying to keep Jesus from obedience to the Father. He was trying to get Jesus off course. He was trying to get him to sin in any way he could. 
but he did not succeed. Our Lord Jesus Christ was victorious over the temptations of the devil. He stood strong in every way. He said, it is written, it is written, it is written. And his allegiance was to his father and only to his father and to none other but his father. And therefore, because of his allegiance to the, to the father and because of his commitment to the word of God and to the truth, he stood strong and he did not fall. Had he fallen there in those temptations, He could not have gone to the cross. Do you understand that? Because he would no longer have been a perfect sacrifice. He would have sinned. And had he not been able to go to the cross, you and I would still be in our sins. And his resurrection ultimately would have been meaningless. But because he withstood the temptation, and the same is true at the time of of his death, when the pressures were great, and when the devil was so much trying to get Jesus to give up. But Jesus, instead of giving up, he went to his knees. And he besought his father in fervent prayer, in agony, his sweat rolling out of his his temples like great drops of blood falling to the ground, saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup be passed from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And the Bible says in the Gospel of Luke that the Lord sent an angel to strengthen Jesus, and he was strengthened in his resolve to go to the cross. And he went to the cross and paid for our sins, and died there so that we could have life. That's what our Lord Jesus did. But if he didn't withstand the devil, if he didn't stand up to these temptations, the cross would have been meaningless. It would have been a non-act as far as redemption is concerned. But he was victorious. Don't you love Jesus for being victorious for us? Don't you want to just worship him and give him praise and glory because of who he is and what he does and what he did for us? He stood, even though the dragon was trying to devour him and tried to destroy him. And of course, Satan, being the ultimate megalomaniac, uh, believed that if he could destroy him at the cross... He could get rid of him forever. And so Satan put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus and turn him over to the Romans who would do the dirty deed of nailing him to the cross at the will of the religious leaders of the Jews, thinking that now he's finally got him out of the way. But knowing the prophecies, knowing what the Bible says, knowing that there would be a resurrection from the dead, knowing that when the cross took place, that his own head as the serpent would be crushed, knowing that all of these things would take place, he did it anyway. Because sin is so entirely and completely deceptive that Satan was even deceived himself by the sin within him. Thinking that the cross could actually do something, but what it actually did was that it killed Satan. In his death, he destroyed him, the Bible says, who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to bondage their entire lives. That's what the cross did. Colossians chapter 2. He destroyed principalities and powers in the cross. He made an open show of them in it, triumphing over them in the cross. Jesus won. He won. He won for you and he won for me. He's our master. He's our Lord. We owe him our lives, by the way. We owe him our lives. 
And if you haven't given your life to Christ, give your life to Christ this morning. He he did this for you because he loves you. What have you done for him? Why are you still living for yourself? When he has commanded all men everywhere to repent. And he has appointed a day in which he is going to come and judge the world in righteousness. These things are going to happen. So why are you waiting? Why are you delaying in committing your life to Christ? So the woman... She bore a male child, verse 5. And so we look at the birth and the meaning of the male child. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And so the woman, Israel, as we've seen, bore a male child, Jesus, as we have seen. Now the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, was prophesied, wasn't it? It was predicted hundreds of years earlier, so it wasn't a surprise. Isaiah 7.14, the Lord himself shall give uh, you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall be called Emmanuel, which is interpreted as God is with us. Isaiah 7.14. Isaiah 9.6, unto us a, a son is born, a child is given. The government will be upon his shoulder. And he should be called Everlasting Father, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. In the book of Micah, in chapter 5, even the place where Jesus was born was named uh, 600 years prior to his birth. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you were little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you, shall come forth to me the one who will be ruler over Israel, whose goings forth are from old, even from everlasting. The eternal God is going to be born as a baby in you, Bethlehem, this little city of Bethlehem in Judah of Israel. Predicted. Guess where Jesus was born? Bethlehem. Where were his parents living prior to his birth? Nazareth. Problem. How do you get the Mary, the mother, down to Bethlehem from Nazareth? Not a problem with God. Just put on the heart of the governor to register everyone for a taxation census. And Joseph, whose registry was there in Bethlehem, would have to travel with his family down to Bethlehem. And he wasn't going to leave Mary behind in Nazareth. And so the Lord got him down there in time to fulfill the prophecy. The Lord's always on time. This child is going to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Hasn't yet happened. His first coming was to pay for our sins. His second coming will be to rule and reign in righteousness. But Psalm 2 is clearly the reference, and I'd encourage you to read all of Psalm 2. It's an amazing prophecy, as he will rule all nations with a rod of iron. And when will that happen? That will happen when the day of man ends. And then the day of the Lord begins. Jesus begins to reign. He ends the day and the reign of man, 
and then he sets himself up on his throne and he reigns forever and ever. Aren't you looking forward to the day of man ending? I mean, we are pretty much royally messing it up. And we have ever since everything has begun. We need King Jesus and we need him bad. Notice also in verse 5 that this child, the child of the woman, was caught up to God and his throne. Now, this isn't a reference to the resurrection of Christ. This is a reference to the ascension of Christ. And so, John, for one reason or another, doesn't include anything here about the child having to do with his life, with his death, or even his resurrection from the dead. The things that are mentioned are the birth of the male child, the ultimate rule and reign of the male child, and the ascension of the male child being caught up to God in his throne. And these are truths about Jesus that I think need to be emphasized in our own hearts. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. So there is his birth. He's going to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Jesus is coming again. That gives hope to the nations so we don't put our trust in human institutions. So there we have that application. We trust Jesus. We don't trust man. And then thirdly, he was ascended into heaven and accepted there, which means that all that he did in his sacrifice and all that he accomplished on the cross, it took. It worked. It accomplished exactly what God had intended that it accomplish. Because Jesus entering into heaven and ascending into heaven establish the standard of righteousness that God accepts into heaven. Jesus' presence into heaven as a resurrected and glorified human being, the God-man, his presence into heaven indicates that this is what God will accept into heaven. The only way to get into heaven is to be as righteous as Jesus is, to be as perfect as Jesus is, and to be without fault as Jesus is. Which pretty much leaves all of us out. (laughs) Except for the fact that he died so that we could be covered with his righteousness. And now we are in him. Now we are in Christ. Now we are no longer in our own righteousness. We're no longer having to answer for our own sins. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And that's what God has done. We are now the righteousness of God in Christ. That's why when we die, and when we pass from this life to the next, To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. The Lord will accept us there. On what basis? On the basis of the Lord Jesus doing what he did for us. And we are in him. He accepted Jesus and his sacrifice and all that was accomplished at Calvary. We are in Christ, therefore he accepts us. Because we're in Christ. 
Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless I look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. And that's what God has done. He's let us hide in Christ. And we are in Him. Listen, brothers and sisters, your identity isn't as a human being apart from Christ. If you're a Christian, do not think of yourself apart from Christ. You are linked with Him. His death became yours. His resurrection became yours. His ascension became yours. His exaltation became yours. And He is in you and you are in Him. And you are therefore no longer to see yourself apart from Christ ever again. We are in Christ. And I love what Paul said in Ephesians, the first chapter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. They're all there. All of the spiritual blessings are in Christ Jesus, and we are in Christ, therefore we have all the spiritual blessings. It's wonderful. It's time for Christians to claim their inheritance. And to live as if those things are true, because they are. We're billionaires, but we're living on a couple hundred dollars a week. Spiritually speaking. We're spiritual billionaires. But sometimes we live as though we've got just a couple hundred bucks in the bank. Oh, God is good. And I think we're going to stop there. And just pick it up next week. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this time that we've had in your word. And Jesus, we thank you for what you've given us, what you've done for us, who you are, and all the things that means to us. As now, what we're going to see next week has become true of us. We also overcome the devil. By your blood, Lord Jesus. And by the word of our testimony. And because we don't love our own lives unto death. Thank you for these things. Build us up in the truths that are ours in Christ. And as we're just in this attitude of prayer, I want to speak to those of you that need to make a commitment this morning to Jesus. Not only do you need to, but God is allowing you to. He brought you here for a reason. This morning, so that you could hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. So that you could understand that he is who he claims to be and that he is what the Bible predicted him to be. He is the only source of salvation. There is salvation in no other. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved other than the name of Jesus. And you can come to know him this morning. It's time for you to say, I'm turning my life over. I want to live a different kind of life. I need to be forgiven of my past. I've done a lot of stuff. 
I need to be forgiven. I want to be forgiven. But what you're wanting to do and what you're needing to do is identify with Jesus. You're needing to say, I believe that he died for me. You're needing to say, I believe he rose from the dead for me. You're needing to say, I believe that eternal life is given as a free gift by Jesus to me as I believe the gospel. So this is just going to be real simple. The Spirit of God is working here this morning. It's your time to to come. It's your time to, to believe. It's your time to repent. I'm just going to ask you to stand right where you are. It's my time. God bless you over there, brother. God bless you. Praise the Lord. And God bless you, sister. Praise the Lord. Just stand this morning. You're saying, I want to identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to come into the kingdom of God this morning and believe in him. Just stand right where you're seated. Mom, you're precious, but you're already in. (laughs) This is my mother. (laughs) You can sit down, Mom. (laughs) Okay, all right. Okay. <laughs> My mom is sweet. Anybody else this morning? Would you two pray with me? Pray out loud this prayer. Father, I admit to you that I am a sinner. Follow this prayer after me and, and just say, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. And I believe he rose from the dead. I invite you into my life. Please forgive me. And help me to live a new life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Can you do me a favor and just come on up here front in the front, both you guys? I want to have you meet Pastor Vince, and I want you to also turn around and let these people here give a congratulations to you guys this morning. This is Carlos, and this is Denise. Welcome, amen. Praise the Lord. Pastor Vince is going to just spend a few minutes with you and just, you know, give you some basic, this is how to get started in this Christian life information. And so God bless you. We're so glad you came. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Shall we stand together?